So welcome to the African History Network show. Uh, those uh, listening on that on Superstation WFDF and watching on our social media forms, our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel. I-M-H-O-T-E-P. It is Sunday, December 18th, 22, and we are live. Uh, you know, Pastor Jamal Bryant was in our Rashawn Ali, and Rashawn Ali posted this on um, her Instagram page. And Pastor Jamal Bryant says he wants to use growing marijuana as a way to bring black men back to church. And when I was on Faraji Muhammad's show, I dealt with some of the history of why marijuana was made illegal. Okay, marijuana was made illegal basically when African Americans started using it. Okay, using it for uh, recreational purposes. And uh, this ties into the history of Mexicans coming into this country after the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Uh, so I dropped some of that knowledge on Faraji Muhammad's show. Now, now on Friday, um, the Washington Post, and we talked about some real filter, but uh, U.S. Attorney Jerry. General Merrick Garland, Attorney General Merrick Garland, um, has has made a move to end the crack versus cocaine sentencing disparity that harms African Americans. Okay, so right now it is an eighteen to one disparity. It was changed in twenty ten under the Obama administration. Prior to, prior to that, it was a hundred to one disparity. Uh, we talked about this on Roland Martin Unfiltered. There's a good article from uh, the, there's also a good article from the Washington Post uh, dealing with this topic. So we're going to talk about this uh, today on the African History Network show as well. And what we see here, we see how the uh, history of drug laws in this country have disproportionately targeted African-Americans. And all this deals with politics. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. Okay. So basically, everything that you want to do, even economic empowerment, is governed by laws and policies. All right. So this is why uh, politics is so important. Okay. So we'll talk about um, those two stories. And then uh, there was another uh, there was another good story that I saw uh, on Roland show on day. He played some of the press conference that uh, Deion Sanders gave before the SWAC championship game with uh, uh, the uh, North Carolina Central uh, Eagles. OK, Jackson State University. But Deion Sanders spoke out regarding the criticism he has received for leaving Jackson State University. I want you to hear what Primetime had to say. All right, now, there was a big article that I posted on our fan page, the African History Network, from um, CBS Sports. And I posted this a few days ago, and it's gotten something like 800 likes on our, um, it's gotten about 800 likes on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, okay? And for some reason, the screen is freezing up on me. All right, stand by those watching on Facebook and uh, stand by those watching on Facebook and YouTube. Okay, so uh, there was an article I posted from CBS Sports, and this deals with 
uh, NFL owners get defensive. NFL owners get defensive after scouting combine gets compared to slave auction by league executive Troy Vincent. Now, Troy Vincent is an African-American uh, National Football League uh, executive. And this criticism from Troy Vincent took place during a closed door meeting with team owners, during a closed door meeting with team owners, okay? Now, people, uh, you know, NFL players have said this in the past and have uh, intimated uh, something to that effect in the past, but this is uh, Troy Vincent. He said this to the white team owner's face, to their faces, okay? And I don't know if something like this on this level has happened in the past. I'm sure it has. I don't know when it was. When you have a uh, team executive like this, when you have a, a NFL executive like this, who's African-American, who has said this to white team owners in a meeting, all right? So th this has gotten about 800 likes on our, our on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. We're going to dig into this and break this down on today's show, all right? NFL owners get defensive after scouting combine gets compared to slave auction by league uh, executive Troy Vincent, who is African-American. And then um, the I, I was going to talk about uh, Georgia's Secretary of State uh, Raffensperger. We dealt with that on Roland Martin Unfiltered, but we'll probably have to get to that. Um, we'll probably have to get to that story when we come back from the holiday break. But the but the story that I want to get to, the last story that we'll cover, is dealing with a, a, a Tatiana Jefferson, a Tatiana Jefferson, and we know that she was shot and killed uh, by a, a white police officer um, in 2019 when she was uh, at home. Uh, uh, she was uh, at home with her nephew. They were playing video games, and they had the door open because they had burnt hamburgers. A neighbor across the street saw the door open, thought it may be a burglary or something like that, called the police. And the uh, arriving officer, Officer Aaron Dean, um, saw Tatiana Jefferson through. He was outside the house. He saw her through the window and she had her gun. She's a legal. She was a legal gun owner. She was 28 years old. She was a legal gun owner. And uh, he saw. He said he saw her gun and he fired one shot through the window, shot and it, and it killed a Tatiana Jefferson. Well, that officer has been found guilty of manslaughter. Officer Aaron Dean has been found guilty of manslaughter in the killing of a Tatiana Jefferson. OK, so we're going to talk about that uh, as well uh, on today's show. Uh, also now on the African history network show, we focus on educating, empowering and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you control the circumference of his or her actions. Because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network. We deal with current events and history. 
education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sometimes I say love and sex and forget relationships, but uh, remember I, I included relationships there. Okay, so I'm trying to focus on relationships. So yeah, we include relationships also. All right. Um, shout out to uh, uh, Alana Jackson, uh, Facebook friend Alana Jackson. She has the Black Consciousness. What, what, let me get the name of her Facebook group correct. It's uh, Black Conscious Consciousness Love. Uh, what is Alana's? Uh, I'm gonna give her a shout out because uh, it's a really it's a really good uh, group. That is for uh, Black Love Conscious Dating, the Black Love Conscious Dating Facebook group. Check that out. Alana Jackson is a Facebook friend of mine. She told me about her Facebook group for conscious um, African-American singles. So check out the Black Love Conscious Dating group. OK. <laughs> all right. So. <laughs> all right. Shout out to Alana Jackson as well. OK. Um. So sign up for our email newsletter, text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828 to sign up for our email newsletter and visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. We have information there about our online classes uh, that we teach. Next class is Wednesday, December 21st, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the winter solstice. And that class is Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. We'll give you more information about that. I will be speaking on uh, to, uh, uh, Tuesday, December 27th at the um, King's the Historic King Solomon Church for their Kwanzaa event, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement is organizing this day. Kuji Chagalia, Self-Determination. Uh, King Solomon Church is doing seven days of Kwanzaa since the Charles H. Wright Museum is doing zero days of Kwanzaa live. They're going to do it all pre-recorded. Um, so it starts December 26, uh, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's the first day, Umoja, which is Monday. And uh, the second day, Kuji Chagalia Self-Determination. I will be speaking there uh, that day. is free and open to the public. Uh, we'll have the information at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about Pastor Jamal Bryant says he wants to use growing marijuana as a way to bring black men back to church, but also teach them agriculture as well. I don't think it's a bad idea. You can give us a call, 313-778-7600, 313-778-7600. Tell us what you think. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation, the Future Radio. All right, calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. Um, and uh, I know we have a call on the line. We'll go, we'll go to the caller here once we get the, into this uh, first segment. Okay, so a lot of people um, have been commenting on social media about uh, Pastor Jamal Bryant. Uh, who, uh, in an interview with uh, Rashawn Ali, um, that's on her Instagram page, he said that he said that he's looking for uh, people who smell like weed. He said he's looking for people who uh, smell like weed, especially uh, African American men uh, who smell like weed. So there was a good article uh, from BlackEnterprise.com. Uh, that uh, talked about this. And then we're going to the clip. We're going to clip one here in just a second, uh, Mukasina. Okay. 
that's in the article from Black Enterprise. Uh, BlackEnterprise.com has an article from December 8th uh, talking about this. I'm looking for people that smell like weed. Pastor Jamal Bryant shares plans to launch cannabis business. Okay. And I want to go to um, this segment here that is uh, in the article. Uh, if you remember the show Sister Circle Live, Sister Circle Live, um, Rashawn Ali was the maker of the show. Came on, it came on after uh, it came on after Roland Martin. But, uh, Rashawn has a uh, podcast show uh, as well, and I just started following her on on uh, Instagram. Okay, and. This is uh, this is what Pastor Jamal Bryant had to do. I'm looking for people that smell like weeds. <laughs> no, 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 really is <laughs> New Birth is the largest land owning black church in America. And so my position to my deacons is why aren't we not raising cannabis? I'll be able to bring in black males. They're able to do it legally. Mm. I'm teaching them farming. Oh my God. I'm helping them to enhance the ecosystem. Uh, th th this is the kind of conversation. So if the guy, black boy in Bankhead said, they growing weed at the church? Where do I join? Yes. I don't need no pamphlet for him. Okay. So this drew a lot of praise and criticism. Uh, what Pastor Jamal Bryant had to say. They break this down in the article from uh, blackenterprise.com. Check out this article from December 8th, 2022. I'm looking for people to smell like weed. Maul Bryant shares plans to launch cannabis business. Now on uh, Faraji Muhammad's show, uh, The Culture, uh, December 2022, uh, we, we're going to clip number two, uh, Mukasina. Uh, we discussed this and, and the first part of this clip, you're going to hear uh, Dr. Bridget Cole Williams, Dr. Bridget Cole Williams, who is a certified family physician, and she's also CEO of Green Harvest Health. OK, I want you to hear uh, she's also the author of a book that talks about the medicinal purposes of marijuana, of cannabis. OK, so I want you to hear uh, uh, this conversation between Faraja Muhammad and Dr. Bridget Cole Williams, and then I come in. After this, let's go to uh, clip number two, please, Mukasina. Doctor, she is the author of the book. Uh, let me just Courage in Cannabis, Dr. Bridget Cole Williams, who is here to talk to us. I got three dynamic ladies <laughs> on the panel to talk about this. Black women, uh, talk about the controversial view that uh, uh, the Pastor Jamal Bryant had put forth that has gotten everybody talking. First and foremost, uh, Dr. Bridget. You have, uh, you are actually, you know, I've got to remind folks, you're just not some quack. You are a board-certified family physician. Yes. You have uh, been practicing medicine for a long time. You have been doing a lot of research on the, on the, uh, the benefits of cannabis. And you have also, I've seen you have put up together some videos to talk about CBD for children. I mean, you've been, you've been, you've been really studying this. And, of course, you've been put out this book, Car Carriage and Cannabis. We talk about the inspiring stories. But this idea of the church and cannabis, first and foremost, is this new? Is this something new? And based on all of your research and understanding of how the cannabis movement continues to grow in this country, is this a new idea? And should this be something that we should really consider? 
Well, it's definitely controversial to say the least. Um, you know, when I when I saw this uh, clip that popped up, I think like most people, a little taken aback, a little concerned, and and the first thought is that it doesn't fit into um, what churches should be doing. However, I think it's much different from that. I think if we take a closer look, what uh, Dr. Bryan is suggesting is honestly not that far off beat and actually could be the window to generational wealth for black people and can actually allow us to take our wellness into our own hands. Mm. So it's controversial, but it still should be considered. Very much so. I mean, we... We live in a culture where other ethnic groups come together and they build wealth, right? So Asians do it. Jews have done it. Italians have done it. Um, consider this. This is our casinos, if we do this well. This is our opportunity. You know, Native Americans were given basically this, their reparation was land, and, and they built casinos on that land and were able to build a massive amount of wealth for themselves by working together. And there's really no other organization in the black community that can really bring us together the way the black church can. And with um, financial literacy, with working together, with approaching this in the correct way, this can be our casinos and this can be our generational wealth. Now, I just want to make it clear, folks, that um, we have uh, reached out to Pastor Brian and um, you know we're working on getting the, pastor, the good pastor to come on to the show to talk about these views a little bit more. So we just wanted to have a, a starting conversation and I wanted to have it with my sister, Dr. Bridget Cole Williams, because I wanted to get past the emotionalism of this Dr. Bridget mm -hmm. and, and get to like the, to the heart of the matter, which is you're seeing, you're seeing that this could be a vehicle for economic, for, for economic vehicle. You're also seeing that this could be a, a cultural shift, right? Yes. Um, because, it's the church. <laughs> it's the, the, we, I mean, we, we have a lot of views on a lot of different things, but when it comes to the institution of church, then the, those views, I wouldn't even go as far as to say, Dr. Bridget, they're very conservative. They're not very liberal. And I'm talking about among black folks. Would you, would you agree or disagree with me on that? Absolutely. Um, you know, the talks that I've done, um, when I've been allowed to go into churches and talk about CBD and talk about yeah, cannabis. <laughs> it's a rough room. It's a rough room, right? Mm -hmm. But so many of us live in pain because we don't want to take narcotics, because we're afraid of addiction. And there is uh, medical possibilities that we can get involved in here. Keep in mind that the cannabis sales that are predicted for 2023 are $30 billion dollars. We own, as Black people, maybe 2% in the industry. This is an opportunity. At first, just like everybody else, I, I was taken aback and, and questioned and, and wondered who would think about growing cannabis. And keep in mind, whether it's cannabis, whether it's hemp, you know, there's a number of different ways to approach this. Yeah. But this is an opportunity. And the churches, to be honest, yes, churches are conservative. Black churches can be incredibly conservative. But we all need to grow and grow up. And there is no other more powerful vehicle for us as people to bring us together than the black church. All right. Now, um, so that was Dr. Bridget Cole Williams giving some uh, very important uh, information and uh, background information dealing with uh, cannabis 
and medicinal purposes. Okay. Um, so I come in, we're going, we're going to clip three, Mukasina. Um, I come in and I wasn't even scheduled to talk on this topic, but when I saw the topic, uh, I said, no, I need to get in on this. Okay. So, uh, we're coming up on a break and I'm going to let you hear what I had to say, because I go into the, uh, what I did was I went into the history of why marijuana was made illegal because prior to 1937, recreational marijuana, medicinal marijuana, all that was legal. But something important happened in the 1930s, especially 1937. Uh, we're going to deal with this on the other side of the break. Also, we'll go to the phone lines as well. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. Listen to the African History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation, the future radio. Okay, the calling number is 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. We're going to the phone lines here uh, in just a minute. Okay, uh, I want to go to, we're going to clip number three, Mukasina. Uh, right before the break, I was sharing with you uh, a clip from Roland Martin Unfiltered. I mean, sorry, from uh, Faraji Muhammad show, The Culture, on the Black Star Media Network, which is Roland March Network. And this is the show from Monday, uh, December 12th, 2022. So I'm a contributor. I'm a weekly contributor on Faraji Muhammad show, usually on Mondays. And then I'm a panelist on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Fridays. Then I do the African History Network show here on 9, 10 a.m. WFDF on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we were talking about uh, Pastor Jamal Bryant and church and cannabis and uh, an interview that he did with uh, Rashawn Ali on her podcast where he said he uh, wanted uh, his church to grow cannabis and teach agriculture to African-Americans, especially African-American men. And he talked about how th this could be a way to attract uh, uh, African-American men to church, but also uh, get them involved in farming. And this can also... Uh, uh, create economic opportunities for African-Americans as well. Okay, so uh, in this next uh, segment here, I come on, because I wasn't even scheduled to talk about this topic, but I come on and I deal with some of the history of why marijuana was made illegal in the first place. Let's go to clip number three, please, Mukasina. Industry, if, if we put it back in our own hands, Africans have been involved with cannabis since the 1500s, if not before. Mm. Let's straighten out this whole perception. Let's educate our community well, and let's change how we go forward and allow cannabis to be that vehicle. I want to bring in another voice in this because my brother, he's he's chomping at the bit. He's like, look, man, I need to be a part of this. This is my brother, Brother Michael in Hotep, who is a scholar. He serves as the host for the African History Network. You can find him on the, his podcast. Uh, Brother Michael, can let's bring him in real quick. Uh, Brother Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I, I know, I know you were going to talk about this other thing, Brother Michael, but I know you, you were like, wait a minute, bro. Hey, Farad, you bring me in. Put right. me in, coach. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. How's everybody doing? Hotep to everybody Good. and peace to the family. Yeah. Uh, so when the doctor mentioned reefer madness, has, has anybody mentioned, so I just came in um, right about four o'clock. Has anybody mentioned Harry J. Anslinger? Not yet. Okay, so you have to, whenever we have this conversation dealing with cannabis or what used to be called hemp, 
when white people were growing it and trading it and it was a crop. We have to go back to the history of why it was made illegal. Because as long as white people were using cannabis or hemp and they were using it for medicinal purposes, it was no problem. The problem mm-hmm. came with Filipinos. The problem came when Mexicans. The problem came when African-Americans started using it. Now it became a problem. It became illegal basically in 1937 because of the marijuana prohibition tax. And that's largely because of a, a man named Harry J. Anslinger, who was a virulent racist. And he was the first chairman of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And he waged a war against um, cannabis being legalized. And this was at a time when um, this is during the Great Depression, number one. Number two, this is after... Uh, whiskey be, uh, after alcohol becomes uh, after yeah, prohibition. prohibition during prohibition, right? So they're looking for another target, and they're looking for uh, another target to keep the funding going to keep their to keep their department uh, intact as well to keep the department funded. So he goes after uh, marijuana. Now he consulted with about thirty doctors, and he he put forth the notion that uh, marijuana. Uh, um, affects people mentally and he, he 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 put forth the notion of harmful effects of marijuana he consulted with about 30 doctors 29 of them disagreed with him one agreed with him he went with the opinion of the one doctor he 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 testified in front of congress in 1937 and he said that white women crave black men sexually when white women are, are high on marijuana don't take my word for it go yeah. read the, go read the article from theatlantic.com called How Neuroscience Reinforces Racist Drug Policy. How Neuroscience Reinforces Racist Drug Policy from June 12, 2014. And it goes through and it deals with his congressional testimony, okay? And he uh, and he said that um, sensationalism like this was specifically aimed at a white readership because he was writing articles in newspapers and magazines you had the movie reefer madness so there was a whole propaganda campaign to scare uh white people uh especially when you have these non-white people using these drugs um sensationalism like this was specifically aimed at a white readership that might worry about such an unfathom unfathomably dangerous ethnic drug getting into the hands of his children Harry J. Anslinger's congressional testimony directly betrayed his racist motivations to enact federal legislation against marijuana. Quote, these are, he said, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S. and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. He said their satanic music, jazz, and swing, swing music result from marijuana usage. He said this marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. End quote. He said this in his congressional testimony. Now, this is why marijuana became illegal. It had nothing to do with causing brain damage or anything like that. As long as white people were using it, it was fine. So I'm all for marijuana being decriminalized. Now, I'm not for recreational usage of marijuana because what we have to be careful of is that if you already have a liquor store on every other corner in the African-American community to keep us drunk and you have a fast food restaurant across the street from the liquor store to keep us obese, then if you put marijuana dispensaries on every other corner or in close proximity to the alcohol and the and the fast food restaurant, then is it there to keep us high as well? And, and the way you suppress the people is you over medicate them. You keep them drunk. You keep them high. You keep them obese to fight back to, to keep them from fighting back against white supremacy and racism. So, yes, it be, yes, it should be decriminalized. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are medicinal, legitimate medicinal purposes for 
cannabis. Usually you don't smoke it. Usually you put it in food because when you smoke it, it reduces the THC level. So I'm for medicinal marijuana. I'm for it being decriminalized. But we have to be clear with our people that there's a reason why marijuana usage was put into hip hop music over 30 years ago when it was illegal. I got to say, so I, I agree with right? a lot of what you said, but I disagree with the whole not making it a recreational thing. I am a curriculum writer. I am an educator. I am a screenwriter. I was able to write 10 episodes of my script. And guess what? Sometimes I like to do it when smoking my marijuana and my brilliance has not been dimmed. Not one bit. I train other educators. I teach coding. I teach beautiful children how to build video games. And so I just disagree with that. I also live in LA where I drive and I teach in Beverly Hills and I see dispensaries in very, very expensive white neighborhoods. And so when you see that and you see them have the access to those dispensaries, and let's just be clear, dispensaries do not only have smokable weed. Again, they have the topical, they have the gummies, they have the drinks, they have for just for sleep, they have it just for anxiety. You don't have to be... But then also, you know, personally, I also have a brother who's an alcoholic. Um, and I would have much rather seen my brother smoke weed than the effects that alcohol had on him as a young man and just seeing the health issues that he has now at the age of 34 from alcohol usage. So for me, if, if you know, whatever his issues are from his anxiety and all these other issues that led him to alcohol, I wish that that would have led him to marijuana instead of alcohol because that was way more detrimental to him as a child. Literally, as someone who I remember getting drunk at like seven, in seventh grade to him yeah. being a grown man now who can right. finally, finally admit that he has an alcohol problem. So I just disagree. I, again, that's yeah, a stigma I, I that we're fighting. What I said, sister. When, I, I'm know, not we hear saying so many that. people say, you know, we shouldn't be recreational. That's the stigma right there that no, that I I'm, personally have been I'm fighting not, against because I'm I was saying, ashamed of smoking because you, you, of perspective such as yours. You, you misunderstand okay. what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm just saying like that's marijuana. just my perspective. Of, I, I'm, you I'm know. not saying recreational marijuana should not be legal. I'm saying we have to be careful about using marijuana for recreational purposes. Re- marijuana, whether it's medicinal or recreational, should have never been made illegal in the first place. Prior to okay. 1937, all of that was legal. I'm not saying recreational marijuana should not be should not be legal. I'm saying we have to be careful about using marijuana recreationally. Mm. It has a medicinal purpose. I don't use alcohol. I like to use it recreationally, and I personally I, don't think there's anything wrong with anyone wanting to use it recreationally. Okay. Now, I'm not saying if it's something that's creating a situation where you're not getting up and going to work, you know, if it's. That's not what I'm saying, but I also am someone who can use it recreationally and still be a brilliant, successful young woman. That's the right. point that I'm you, making. So I don't, you, I don't correlate. Putting, so I, don't, I don't correlate a dispensary in the community that I correlate the same way that I correlate a liquor store. That's that's just simply what I'm saying. But I respect okay. your point of view. Okay. 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 Go ahead, Brother Michael. I'm gonna let you finish, and then I want to get from Dr. Bridget and B. Mm-hmm. So it still comes down to education at the end of the day that, mm-hmm. you know, these very emotional and strong opinions that we have are really based a lot on the viewpoints and stigmas that have, have come about. I would like to think that we've learned a lot from when we've allowed other people to control what goes into our neighborhoods. This is the opportunity for us to control what goes on in our neighborhoods, to mm-hmm. educate ourselves about how to use it, to consider tolerance breaks, to consider how what level of THC do we actually want to create and disperse in amongst our people. We have an opportunity to see this in a different light, to allow it to not lead to misuse. And keep in mind, there are vices everywhere in every aspect Mm -hmm. of society and culture and, and socioeconomics. 
we always have to be um, careful with those vices. And the best thing that we can do is educate them appropriately. But if this can also lead to um, financial opportunities and get us out of being only 4% of wealth in this country when we are 13% of the, the population, you know, like I said, I don't know if this is what um, Dr. Bryan had in mind, but this is the opportunity that lands before us, whether it's him or anybody else. And so, yes, we do need to be careful with it, but this is an opportunity that um, that we can take advantage of, that we right. can educate our people about, that we can use it in a medicinal manner and to make sure that we don't misuse it. Because, again, the other vices that are available to us readily yeah. do much, much more harm than cannabis ever will. Corinna, check that. I agree. The Corinna- okay, so that was uh, uh, the last female voice you heard. So that was uh, uh, Dr. Bridget, okay, Dr. Bridget Cole Williams. And uh, I, I agree with her. Now, I wasn't saying that um, medicinal, I, I wasn't saying that recreational marijuana should not be legal. And I'm not talking about one person's uh, marijuana usage experiences, okay? And they'll be able to write plays and work in and and operate uh, in a in a functional manner. I'm talking about understanding a system of white supremacy and racism and understanding the last 500 years of history and understanding what happened when uh, uh, the British used opium uh, in Hong Kong, when they used alcohol against Native Americans, when they flooded the African-American community with heroin in the 1960s. This is what I'm talking about. OK, we'll deal with this on the other side of the break and we'll go to your calls on, on the phone lines. 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call in number if you have a question or comment. I'm Michael M. Hotep. You listen to the African History Network show. We'll be back in a few minutes. Hello, African History Network family. You've put it off for way too long. Now it's time to act for your family, your future and the next generation. Get life insurance for that peace of mind and security for you and your loved ones. Build your financial foundations starting today. Your independent agent at Fortify Trust Life Brokers with over a dozen strong A-rated life insurance companies to offer you the life protection you need when it comes to final expense, term life, whole life, mortgage protection, annuities, and more. They're currently licensed in Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. Don't let a pre-existing health condition hinder you from getting life insurance. You can get the affordable coverage you need today. Life insurance is only the beginning. Email them at Fortify Trust Life for a free fact sheet explaining the five basic building blocks for a strong financial foundation. It's their gift to you to help you fortify your future. Email them at fortifytl828 at yahoo.com or call them at 706-339-5096 and leave a message. Fortify your future today. Welcome back to the African History Network show. All right, calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Also, uh, be sure to visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. 
we have the flyer up now for the seven day Kwanzaa celebration taking place um, at the historic King Solomon Church in Detroit, 6100 14th Street in Detroit. Uh, this is organized by the Black Legacy Coalition. Uh, we know the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Uh, they're doing uh, their they're doing virtual Kwanzaa. It's all recorded this year. There's no live, uh, no in-person live Kwanzaa celebration. So uh, the Black Legacy Coalition said, I can't go for that, like Hall and Oates said. So they're organizing this. Uh, seven days of Kwanzaa. Um, first day, Umoja, December 26, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. is hosted by the Shrine of the Black Madonna. The Shrine of the Black Madonna. Second day is hosted by uh, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. That's uh, Sister Shoshana Shakur and Brother Bomani and all the people at the uh, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. I will be speaking um, on the second day of Kwanzaa, Kuji Chagalia, Self-Determination, on that's Tuesday, December 27th, uh, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the, uh, the event is 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. I think I speak about 8 o'clock. Um, and this is uh, at the King Solomon uh, Church, okay, King Solomon Church. We have the information on the homepage of our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, and I'll deal with some of the history of Kwanzaa and also talk about uh, the new film, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, the third day of Kwanzaa, Ujima, which means collective work and responsibility, uh, is on uh, Wednesday, December 28th. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's hosted by the good people over at Insaroma Institute. Okay, uh, uh, Malikia Kenny and um, uh, Sister um, uh, Edub on Facebook, uh, Elizabeth, Sister Elizabeth and others. Uh, the fourth day, and, and that's 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Each day is 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. except for uh, the last two days, uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Uh, uh, Ujama or Ujama. Uh, cooperative economics, the fourth day, uh, December 29th, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Al Noor African Dance, uh, troop is organizing that. Uh, the fifth day, Nia, okay, which means purpose, uh, December 30th is hosted by uh, the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was Marcus Garvey's uh, organization he founded in Jamaica in 1914. Then Garvey comes to the U.S. in 1916 and starts setting up chapters, and it was the UNIA. Uh, and it was Marcus Garvey who created the bandera or the Pan-African flag, which was adopted um, in uh, 1920, uh, August 13th, 1920, at the International Conference of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Uh, then we have uh, the sixth day of Kwanzaa, um, Kuumba, okay, which means uh, creativity. It's Kuumba and a Karamu Fest, uh, New Year's Eve, December 31st. This is going to be 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., hosted by Nanu uh, uh, Japo, And then the last day of Kwanzaa, Imani, which means faith, is uh, New Year's Day, January 1st, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., hosted by Hood Research. That's Theo Groton and the good people over at Hood Research. Okay, so visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. We have the information there. Seven days of Kwanzaa at the historic King Solomon Church, uh, 6100 14th Street, in Detroit, 48208, 
For general information, call 313-969-9115, 313-969-9115. For vendor information, I'll be a vendor the first two days also. I may be a vendor the other days. I don't know, but I got to work as well, so I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But the first two days, I'll definitely be a vendor. Um, so we'll have our DVD lectures. You can register for online classes. We'll have uh, uh, digital downloads. And also, I put uh, some of the lectures on flash drives, uh, jump drives, flash drives for your computer as well. For vendor information, call 313-979-0301, 313-979-0301. Uh, Sister Zainabu, I know, is handling um, the, um, the vendor. She always does an excellent job uh, with vendors. Okay, let's go to the phone lines. Let's go to... Um, line one, and we have um, who we have Cynthia on line one. Cynthia, thanks for holding. Welcome to the African History Network show. Tell us where you're calling from. My name is Cynthia Clark. I'm calling from Chicago. From Chicago. Hey, Chicago in the house. How you doing? Wonderful. Go ahead. You're on the air, Cynthia. You have a question or comment? Okay. I wanted to comment on the cannabis. And the church. Yes. And I think it's a great idea. Mm -hmm. The one thing that, well, maybe more than one thing, but the thing that comes to mind for me in terms of being careful is not to be a pusher of it or turn people on to it. However, uh, Jamal said that he is looking for people that already smell like weed. Right. Now, people that like their weed, well, my dad, he's a he used to love his weed. It's not my thing. I'll take a shot of tequila here and there. Right. But my dad used to love his weed. And guess what? He was going to smoke it no matter what. So I think it's a good idea mm -hmm. to have it sourced by trustworthy people. So, for instance, last week, I took the red line downtown here in Chicago. Okay. And the gentleman, the young guy that was selling the stuff on the train. Right now, 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 Cynthia, explain yeah, to people. Ex Cynthia, explain to people who don't live in Chicago what the red line is. The red line is the train that runs from the south side of Chicago all the way to the north side of Chicago okay. and takes us downtown. Okay. And uh, it's known for being somewhat treacherous at times. Lately, we had a crime spree. It's getting better because it's cold, but it's rough <laughs> out here because after the pandemic, people kind of fell into a lower rung of status and it's more homelessness and things like that. Okay. So we got our young fellas selling that stuff on the train. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they sell the blue squares loud, which is what they call their weed, and now some of them are selling liquor shots on the train. I was like, whoa, that's new. But anyway, we don't know what's in that stuff, Michael. Right. So our young people or our people, period, that are into that thing, mm -hmm. you don't know if it's fentanyl in there. You don't know what the freak is in there. Right. So to have it sourced by a source like Jamal's church, uh, for those that are already on it, hey, give them, let them get it, you know, the good stuff from them instead of mm -hmm. this crap that's out here, number one. But we have to be careful not to turn people on to it. Right. I don't want my daughter turned on to weed, you know. Uh, and uh, if I had my brothers, I would have never, you know, drunk, you know, before. But, you know, I like a, a shot here and there. But, right. uh, yeah, that's that's my thought on it. Just okay. Don't get into the point where you're pushing it on our people. Right. But for those that are already smelling like weed, like them all said, 
hey, give them a better sort of the product. All right, Cynthia, thanks for calling. We're up against the break. Uh, you listen to the African History Network show on Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, who um, is uh, who gave a directive to his U.S. attorneys, and he's moving to end sensing disparity uh, between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Listen to the African History Network show on Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Hello, African History Network family. You've put it off for way too long. Now it's time to act for your family, your future, and the next generation. Get life insurance for that peace of mind and security for you and your loved ones. Build your financial foundations starting today. Your independent agent at Fortify Trust Life Brokers with over a dozen strong a-rated life insurance companies to offer you the life protection you need when it comes to final expense, term life, whole life, mortgage protection, annuities, and more. They're currently licensed in Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. Don't let a pre-existing health condition hinder you from getting life insurance. You can get the affordable coverage you need today. Life insurance is only the beginning. Email them at Fortify Trust Life for a free fact sheet explaining the five basic building blocks for a strong financial foundation. It's their gift to you to help you fortify your future. Email them at FortifyTL828 at Yahoo.com or call them at 706 339 5096 and leave a message. Fortify your future today. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. Now we deal with a number of different topics here on the After History Network show. We do a current events and history and much, much more. We're going to give you an update on what's going on. This is about self-preservation. We have to extinguish the fire of white supremacy. See, let's just have consequences. Catch it all right here on 910 AM Superstation. Podcast. We just want you to know, but uh, I'm dealing with understanding a history of white supremacy and racism. Okay. All right. So we're back on uh, broadcasting on social media and I wanted, here's a, um, I wanted to deal with some of this history here. Then we're going to go to this next topic that deals with uh, attorney general Merrick Garland uh, calling, calling for a um, end to the, uh, crack cocaine versus powder cocaine discrepancy when it comes to prosecution. Okay. So this is, uh, this article here is from frontline.com is from PBS.org public broadcasting system. And it deals with the, uh, some of the history of, uh, marijuana usage. I'm sorry. Some of the history of, uh, drug laws, especially marijuana laws. Okay. And it's a marijuana timeline, a marijuana timeline. Um, and a lot of people don't know that, uh, hemp was grown hemp, which is the fiber of the marijuana plant, but hemp was, um, encouraged domestic production of hemp, uh, was encouraged 
to be grown in the 1600s. Uh, it, it says American production of hemp uh, was encouraged by the government in the 17th century. So this is uh, during the colonial period. This is before you have the U.S. Constitution, before it's the United States of America. Uh, American production of hemp was encouraged by the government in the 17th century for the production of rope, sails, S-A-I-L-S, sails for like ships, and clothing. And it goes on to say marijuana is the mixture of dried, shredded flowers and leaves that comes from the hemp plant, H-E-M-P, hemp plant. Now, in 1619, the Virginia Assembly in the county of Virginia uh, passed legislation requiring every farmer to grow hemp in the uh, Virginia colony. Hemp was also was allowed hemp was allowed to be exchanged as legal tender in the counties of Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Maryland. Okay, so as long as white people were using hemp. And yes, African-Americans who are being enslaved were working on these plantations. It wasn't just tobacco. It wasn't just cotton. Cotton is not king yet in the in the uh, 1600s, but they're still growing cotton. Um, but hemp was a big product that was being grown in the colonies. Hemp was allowed was allowed to be exchanged as legal tender. Hemp, hemp was allowed to be exchanged as legal tender in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Florida. All right, the computer's freezing up on me for some reason. All right, stand by. Okay, now domestic production flourished until after the Civil War when imports and other uh, domestic materials replaced hemp for many purposes, okay? So this is some... This is some background information on uh, hemp and the production of hemp. Okay, let's see here. Okay. Uh, domestic production flourished until after the Civil War when imports and other domestic materials replaced hemp for many purposes. In the late 19th century, marijuana became a popular ingredient in many medicinal, uh, in many medicinal products and was sold openly in public pharmacies, okay? Now, Civil War is 1861, 1865. So domestic production of hemp in the United States uh, flourished until after the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War. Now, during the 19th century, the 1800s, hashish use became a fad in France and also to some extent in the U.S., okay? Now, they go on to talk about... Um, uh, okay, 1906, uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act, but in in, in the 1900, early 1900s, uh, 1900 to 1920s, Mexican immigrants introduced recreational use of marijuana leaf. Mexican immigrants introduced the recreational use of the marijuana leaf. Now, after the Mexican Revolution of 1910, Mexican immigrants uh, flooded into the U.S., introducing to American culture the, rec the recreational usage of marijuana. The drug became associated with the immigrants and the fear and prejudice about the Spanish-speaking newcomers became associated with marijuana. Anti-drug campaigners warned against the encroaching 
quote unquote marijuana menace and terrible crimes were attributed to marijuana and the Mexicans who use marijuana. Now, marijuana is a Spanish term. They renamed hemp and cannabis. They renamed it marijuana. And what they did was the, the fear and prejudice that white many white people had in this country of these Mexicans who were coming into the U.S., that got associated with the new term marijuana, which was rebranding something that white people have been using for hundreds of years. OK, so this was there was a whole it was a whole propaganda campaign behind this, a propaganda campaign of fear. And then you add on to it Filipinos using marijuana, you add on to it African-Americans using marijuana. And then you go into you go into the Great Depression, uh, 1930s, uh, and you have Fear, a fear of marijuana. Now, during the Great Depression, massive unemployment increased public resentment and fear of Mexican immigrants. This is long before Donald Trump came along, long, okay? Lying about Mexicans and lying about immigrants, things like this, right? Escalating public and governmental concern about the problem of marijuana, okay? Uh, this instigated a flurry of research which linked the use of marijuana with violence, crime, and other socially deviant behaviors primarily committed by quote unquote racially inferior or underclass communities. Committed primarily, primarily committed by quote unquote racially inferior or underclass communities. By 1931, 29 states had outlawed marijuana. Okay, so then you have the creation of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930, and you have the white supremacist racist named Harry J. Anslinger, who became the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and he remained in that post until 1962. Okay, then 1936, you have the movie Reefer Madness that comes out. This was a propaganda film. Reefer Madness was produced by French director uh, Louis uh, 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 Louis Gasnier, G A S. N-I-E-R, G-A-S-N-I-E-R. Now, the Motion Pictures Association of America, composed of the major Hollywood studios, banned the showing of any narcotics in films. Then in 1937, you have the Marijuana Prohibition Tax, which basically, uh, it, it basically prohibits um, marijuana except for medicinal purposes and the sale of marijuana and the usage of it. Now, after a lurid national campaign against the quote unquote evil weed, Congress passed the Marijuana Tax, of, uh, Marijuana tax Act of 1937 or the Marijuana Prohibition Tax Act of 1937. The statute effectively criminalized marijuana, restricting it, uh, restricting possession of the drug to individuals who paid an excise tax for certain authorized medical and industrial uses okay so read the rest of this here this deals with a snapshot of a timeline uh, of of marijuana history in this country and marijuana usage this is at pbs.org it's from frontline okay pbs.org public broadcasting system okay now i want to switch gears i want to go to uh this next story here dealing with attorney general merrick garland and uh this deals with the uh crack cocaine versus powder cocaine uh, discrepancy, all right? Now, I, I first saw this story from the Washington Post, and I heard the announcement on uh, uh, Friday, uh, December 16th. But the Washington Post has this story. Uh, U.S. Attorney 
Um, let's see, what is this? U.S. Attorney General moves to end sentencing disparities. U.S. Attorney General moves to end sentencing disparities on crack, powder, cocaine. Uh, Justice Department aims to reverse decades of policy that critics say uh, disproportionately targeted black and brown communities by treating crack users more punitively, giving harsher sentences to uh, crack cocaine users. All right. And we also talked about this on Roland Martin Unfiltered. We're going to clip number four here in just a minute, Mukasina. Uh, we also talked about this on Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, on December 16th, uh, 2022. Okay, now, if we look at this article here from uh, Washington Post, and let me pull this up here just a second. Let's get this queued up. Okay, if we look at this uh, piece quickly here from the Washington Post, Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday, December 16th, instructed uh, federal prosecutors, instructed federal prosecutors to end charging and sentencing disparities in cases involving the distribution of uh, crack and powder cocaine after decades of law enforcement policy disproportionately treating crack offenders more punitively. Now, Attorney General Merrick Garland's uh, more effectively, Attorney General Merrick Garland's move effectively seeks to eliminate the significant difference in the amount of powder cocaine relative to crack cocaine that is required to be in a suspect's possession to trigger mandatory minimum federal sentences upon conviction. Now, critics of the longtime policy have said it it is a relic of Washington's misguided War on drug, uh, war on drugs era that targeted the African American and Latino communities, resulted in uh, overpopulation of prisons and strained federal and local resources at the expense of more effective strategies. Now, Attorney General Merrick Garland had said during his confirmation hearing in uh, 2021 that he opposes the sentencing disparities. And the legal expert said his memo to U.S. attorneys is an uh, effort to formally align Justice Department policy. Quote, this is an example of the Department of Justice doing exactly what it has the power to do without an act of Congress, without an act of Congress. Quote, we as prosecutors are going to be fair and just and not treat black and brown people as if they are somehow worse than white people, said um, Attorney Maya Wiley, uh, president and chief executive of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, a coalition of more than 200 groups. Uh, we're going to continue this on the other side of the break. We talked about this on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday. Uh, I'm going to let you hear uh, that discussion as well. You listen to the African History Network show on Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Hello, African History Network family. You've put it off for way too long. Now it's time to act for your family, your future, and the next generation. Get life insurance for that peace of mind and security for you and your loved ones. Build your financial foundations starting today. Your independent agent at Fortify Trust Life Brokers with over a dozen strong 
A-rated life insurance companies to offer you the life protection you need when it comes to final expense, term life, whole life, mortgage protection, annuities, and more. They're currently licensed in Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. Don't let a pre-existing health condition hinder you from getting life insurance. You can get the affordable coverage you need today. Life insurance is only the beginning. Email them at Fortify Trust Life for a free fact sheet explaining the five basic building blocks for a strong financial foundation. It's their gift to you to help you fortify your future. Email them at FortifyTL828 at yahoo.com or call them at 706-339-5096 and leave a message. Fortify your future today. Right before the break, we were talking about Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, giving a directive to his um, uh, U.S. attorneys, to uh, federal prosecutors, uh, to uh, end charging and sentencing disparities in cases involving the distribution of crack and powder cocaine. Uh, it's a good article from uh, the Washington Post that deals with this. Uh, the name of this article, once again, uh, U.S. Attorney, let me pull this up here, uh, U.S. Attorney General moves to, moves to end sentencing disparities on crack powder cocaine. This is from uh, Friday, December 16th, 2022, written by David Nakamura. Uh, be sure to visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. We have the uh, information about uh, Seven Days of Kwanzaa that Black, Black Legacy Coalition is organizing at, at the historic King Solomon Church in Detroit, 6100 14th Street, uh, Detroit, Michigan. This is taking place uh, Monday, December 26th through uh, January 1st, 2023, uh, Sunday, January 1st, 2023. We know uh, Kwanzaa starts uh, the day after Christmas on December 26th. So December 26, 2022 through January 1st, 2023. Also uh, on the homepage of our website, we have the uh, special promotion going on until uh, Christmas Eve, December 24th. Uh, we have the 15 download uh, bundle pack of 15 of my lectures, African History Awakens the African Mind from Mental Death, African History awakens the African mind for mental death. You get 15 of my lectures in digital download format. You can uh, stream it and you can also download the lectures as well. Uh, it's, it's $150 value on sale for a very limited time only for only $50. It makes a great gift, Kwanzaa gift, Christmas gift, uh, graduation gift, what have you. Okay. Uh, we also have the, uh, in digital download format, my latest lecture, that I did November 19th, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever Analysis, African and Mesoamerican Culture. This is about two hours. This is on sale $10. And then we have the uh, online classes that I teach that you can register for as well. Our next online class, and this will be the last session for 2022, is taking place Wednesday, December 21st, 2022, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
This is ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, okay? Because our next session uh, of these classes will be in January 2023. So this class is on sale $60, regularly $130. We do the classes live. All the classes, are, all the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. So as soon as you register for this, we have a lot of content for you to watch. And you could join us live in class. Wednesday, December 21st, 2022, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Click right here, uh, register here to register for the course. And the uh, class that I teach on Tuesdays is from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. That class will meet next on Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023 in the new year, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, so you register for that class as well. And we have a bundle pack of both courses uh, for only $100. That is a over $260 value because it's bonus content that you get as well. So you can uh, register for the bundle pack of courses. Right now, we have a ton of content for you to start watching. You know, family members will be over for the holidays. You can share this with your family members uh, as well. You all can watch and learn together. Okay, uh, we're going to clip number four here from Roland Martin Unfiltered, uh, Mukasina. So we discussed this, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland's announcement. And um, Roland spoke with Regina LaBelle, not Regina Bale, the singer, but Regina LaBelle who is the uh, Addiction and Public Policy Initiative Director and O'Neill Insta Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University Law Center and North Dakota Congressman Kelly Armstrong. Uh, we spoke with them on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday. Let's go to this clip, please, Mukasina. Folks, there's long been a disparity in this country between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Uh, the citizen has changed multiple times. It used to be 100 to 1 under President Obama. It was a shrink, it went from 100 to 1 to 14 to 1, but there's still a disparity. Well, today, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced uh, that they are trying to reverse decades of this disparity. And so what he has done is instructed federal prosecutors to end citizen disparities in cases involving the distribution of crack and powder cocaine. Again, since the 80s. The law has treated crack cocaine, which primarily impacts African-Americans, differently than powder cocaine, which is primarily used by white Americans. So what's going to happen is this. This move is going to eliminate the current mandatory minimum federal sentence. Now, the national policy for possessing 28 grams of crack cocaine triggers a minimum prison sentence of five years compared to 500 grams of powder cocaine. Joining us right now is Regina LaBelle, the Addiction and Public Policy Initiative Director for at O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University Law Center. Also, North Dakota Congressman Kelly Armstrong joins us as well. Glad to have uh, both of you here. Um, I, I want to start with you first, Regina, because, look, we've been covering this issue, and it has always been nonsensical to have a different sentencing but crack cocaine and powder cocaine when both are cocaine. Yeah, I mean, we've been we've been at this, as you said, uh, since 1986. Uh, for four decades, we've had the sentencing disparity. And as you mentioned, you know, we went from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. And now we have an opportunity. There is um, there's 
um, action uh, in Congress that would make this permanent to get rid of the disparity. Because what the attorney general did today was excellent. And it sends a message to prosecutors about this. However, when you have, if you have another attorney general, that attorney general could revise it. It also doesn't make it retroactive. So the legislation that's currently pending in Congress, the Equal Act, would do that. It would eliminate the uh, crack cocaine powder disparity, and it would also make it retroactive. I testified on this issue last year in Congress uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee when I was acting director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, and I was joined by Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchins. <coughs> And he knows what a disparity this is and what an injustice it is, and it's time for it to change. The, the thing that's weird here, Congressman Armstrong, is I, I don't understand why members of Congress have not seen how nuts this is. And the reality is the crack cocaine uh, guidelines have disproportionately impacted African-Americans getting longer jail time. And it's crazy to say 28 grams uh, of crack cocaine, 500 grams of powder cocaine. Uh, and then you talk about these long princes, prison sentences. I mean, this has been detrimental to the black community in terms of tearing people away from their families. The House of U.S. House of Representatives passed it, I think, 361 to 66 over a year ago. Uh, that means the majority of Republicans supported a one to one disparity and appropriate and doing and doing retroactivity as well. So um, we've been negotiating. I've had great partners with Congressman Jeffries, Congressman Durbin, Congressman or Senator Durbin, Senator Booker and uh, Senator Grassley. And I agree completely with uh, uh, the previous uh, guest statement. Merrick, what Merrick Garland did is great, but it's not permanent. I actually wish he would have, if this memo was coming out, would have probably waited until after whatever gets attached to uh, the omnibus bill gets attached, because we're working really hard to get the Equal Act onto our, our negotiated version of the Equal Act onto the year-end bill. So, Regina, if the House passed it, what's been the holdup in the Senate? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Um, you know, as I said, I testified last year on the issue, and there's there's been incredible bipartisan support in the House. I think the sticking point um, is, uh, you know, should it be zero and should it be retroactive? I think there's no question that people acknowledge that it needs to be the disparity needs to be reduced and that it's not science based. But, you know, everything, the devil is in the details. Next week, we'll see what Congress comes out with in the omnibus bill. And um, but but today, you know, the, the attorney general sent the right message to the prosecutors and also to people um, who are who were affected by this, as you said, families and people who have uh, loved ones who've been uh, disproportionately affected, that, you know, we're going to take the step. Yes, now Congress can take the next step and pass the Equal Act. Um, Congressman, uh, you talk about that there's still time for the Senate uh, to make these changes. How much time are we talking about? Because what? You've got the Christmas break coming up. So, so how much time do we have? 
48 hours, I think. I, I think the uh, omnibus bill will be written by the end of this weekend, and we'll come back and both pa parties will move. And if we can't get it attached here, we're going to have to start all over again next Congress, which would be really unfortunate because even in spite of all of the different politics around crime and all of those different issues, there are just about every organization from all across the ideological uh, spectrum supports this because it's the right thing to do. And, and Regina, we also know that when Congress makes these changes, it has an impact on what states do. Right. I mean, you know, actually, um, Governor Hutchinson was saying that in Arkansas, he actually got rid of the disparity. So a lot of the states have already gotten rid of this, this disparity, you know, because the states have known, have seen that not only doesn't it prevent drug use, uh, it also costs them a lot of money to incarcerate people over time. So they're putting that money into what it should be used for, which is preventing youth substance use and keeping people who have a substance use disorder, getting them into treatment as opposed to putting them into jails or prisons where their conditions often deteriorate. So, Congressman, sorry about that. I had an audio issue here. So, I know I had an audio issue here. So, Congressman, uh, last question for you. What do you need our audience to do? What should the public be doing um, right now to push this along? Keep, uh, keep the support, keep the pressure on. Let's keep moving forward. Everybody knows where it's at. Uh, we've been negotiating, like I said, there's been a group of senators, uh, bipartisan on both sides. We just need to get it in there. We need to get a negotiation and we need to make sure that we're moving forward. And I think it is really important because states that have sentencing guidelines often look to the federal federal court, the ones that haven't done it. So this is a really big deal, not just for federal sentences, but for people all across the country. And it's a really big deal for people who have these unbelievably long sentences from something that happened when they were 19 and have the opportunity to get out and be uh, get back to their family, see their kids, see their parents and become members of society instead of sitting in 47 year prison sentence for a nonviolent crime they committed when they were 19 years old. Agree 100 uh, percent. Regina uh, LaBelle, thanks a bunch. Congressman Armstrong, thanks a bunch. We appreciate uh, your efforts on this issue. Thank you. Thank you. I want to bring my panel in, Kelly Bethea, communication strategist, Michael M. Hiltup, host the African History Network show, Joe Richardson, civil rights attorney. Joe, I want to start with you uh, again. I mean, you know, these laws um, have been so discriminatory, have had such a negative impact on African-Americans. Uh, and it goes to show you uh, the racism that has existed when you literally have cocaine and it, like it's crazy, you could have thirty times more uh, of powder cocaine, and you're getting the same sentence as crack cocaine, twenty eight grams to five hundred. It's crazy. I mean, we are still dealing with the effects of the so-called war on drugs. It's too bad. It's unfortunate. And you know, in one of Bill Clinton's true weaknesses, which was called a strength, he was a great triangulator. 
it was meant that he would go and, 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 and steal things that Republicans would normally do so he could look a little less uh, democratic or a little less liberal. It was always popular to be hard on crime. And so, therefore, you know, when we was ending welfare as he knows it and as we know it and then doing the crime bill, um, there were things that came from that war on drugs, which goes over some period of time, that we're still trying to undo. You know, they would do it bad, you know, in one step, but it seems like coming all the way back, you got to take four or five to get just as far. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, you've destroyed families generationally. Um, and now here's Congress where the House knows that it's the right thing to do and it's got bar bipartisan support, but I suspect that, uh, you know, there's something to uh, be said for trying to get past that 60 vote threshold. Here we go again, you know, filibuster, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it has been devastating. It's been devastating for a long time. I think the thing that is good, I don't know if they're going to get it done in 48 hours, but the thing that is good is that there does seem to be bipartisan support this time around. And perhaps maybe there's a backdoor opportunity for this to get done in a Congress that's not so Republican on the uh, 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 House side where moderates of that are Democrats and Republicans could actually work together on something that has a bipartisan uh, basis of support. And, and, and the thing here, uh, Kelly, when we talk about um, th this disparity and, and the impact. Let's just be honest. Um, you have a much different Congress today <clears throat> than you had when Bill Clinton was there or even when President Obama was there. And this is the thing where we talk about how voting matters. When you're able to have more progressive voices, the size of the Congressional Black Caucus today is different than it was 20, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, and so the work of activists has also been critical in changing the viewpoints of a lot of these Republicans who were opposed and a lot of also these conservative Democrats. <clears throat> You're absolutely right. But another component that um, I don't want to say was missed, but is something worth talking about is these congressmen, these these policymakers now are finally admitting that they have people in their lives, either immediately or, you know, on a tangent. Uh, who experienced something regarding the crack epidemic, who experienced something regarding the cocaine epidemic. So it, it's hitting closer to home now. It's not some boogeyman out there like it, how it was with weed or with cigarettes or anything like that. You have people now who are intimately affected by, by this tragedy of legislation being that somehow, some way, there's a difference between crack and crack. Um, or cocaine and cocaine. So it's not so much that uh, people are are finally realizing it or whatever. It, it's the the closer it hits home to you, the more likely something is going to change. Um, and yes, it's selfish. Yes, yes, it is self centered. But that that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, thankfully, it's crumbling a little bit faster now. Thankfully, Merrick Garland also realizes that this was just bad policy and wants to change it. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful for the, the progression that has happened in the, in uh, recent decades regarding this, this line of legislation, because it really is ridiculous that uh, the discrepancy was so large and so blatantly discriminatory against black people. Michael. 
Yeah, you know, Roland, uh, Joe, uh, re- uh, Attorney Joe Richardson really hit on something that's uh, really important. He said the uh, war on drugs goes back decades before the 1994 crime bill, which is signed in law September 13, 1994. Actually goes back to June 17, 1971 under Richard Nixon. And we're going to see the U.S. prison population quadruple from about 1970 to 1993. It goes from about 300,000 to 1.3 million. And uh, John Ehrlichman, who was Richard Nixon's domestic policy advisor. Uh, an interview was shared in the April 2016 uh, issue of uh, Harper's Bazaar Weekly. It was called Legalize It All. The article was written by Dan Baum, journalist Dan Baum, and he quoted John Ehrlichman as saying that the war on drugs was really a war on the anti-war left, the, the hippies against the Vietnam War, and the African-American community. And he said that John Ehrlichman told him by associating marijuana with the anti-war left, and heroin with the African-American community. You could uh, raid their offices. You could investigate their leaders. You can jail them, things like this. And he talked about how they would run stories every night on the nightly news to convince people that you needed a war on drugs, okay? And, and when we go, I remember here in Detroit in the 1980s when crack first hit, and we saw story after story after story on the evening news talking about crack, how addictive it was, things like this. And this helped to fuel the war on drugs. So this is long overdue. And for those that say the Congressional Black Caucus don't do anything, I just want them to understand that Senator Cory Booker of the Congressional Black Caucus is a co-sponsor of the Equal Act bill as well. So this this is extremely important and it's long overdue. All right, we're going to pick this up on the other side of the break. Listen to the African History Network show on Michael M. Hotep. Call in numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call in number if you have a question or comment. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation WFDF will be back in a few minutes. If we look at a response from um, uh, Senator Cory Booker, because I mentioned Senator Cory Booker, okay? This is from, let's see, this is from booker.senate.gov, booker.senate.gov, okay? And this was a response from Senator Cory Booker from um, December 16th, 2022. Booker's statement on Justice Department policy change on cocaine sentencing disparities. Booker's statement on Justice Department policy change on cocaine sentencing disparities. Uh, Senator Coy Booker, who is a co-sponsor of the Equal Act Bill in the U.S. Senate. Uh, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, Senator Coy Booker is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee and a lead sponsor of the Equal Act that would eliminate the federal crack powder cocaine sentencing disparity, he issued the following statement. He said, quote, it is fundamentally unjust that for decades, baseless and unscientific sentencing disparities between crack and powder cocaine have contributed to the explosion of mass incarceration, have contributed to the explosion of mass incarceration in the United States. Today's announcement recognizes this injustice and takes steps to finally strike parity between powder and crack cocaine sentences when there is no pharmacological differences in the substances. Um, He goes on to say, quote, but this is not a permanent answer and won't help those already serving an unjust sentence. I have worked tirelessly 
to secure a filibuster-proof majority, a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate for the Equal Act and build a bipartisan coalition, including 11 Republican senators who support a one-to-one -one sentencing ratio. We must pass the Equal Act now to write this policy change into law following the lead of 41 states that had, have already done so. So that is um, from Senator Cory Booker, who's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus and a senator from New Jersey. Okay, now if we go back in uh, quickly, because we're running out of time here, those watching on Facebook and YouTube, our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel, keep watching. When we run out of time here on that 10 a.m., WFDF, we're going to keep going on, on our social media platforms, okay? Uh, if we go back to the article from the uh, Washington Post, U.S. Attorney General moves to end sentencing disparities on crack powder cocaine, okay? On page three of the article, I want to go down to this here, uh, and it talks about how the move long sought by civil rights advocates comes as the Equal Act a bill that would eliminate the disparity has been stalled in the U.S. Senate and uh, amid objections from Republicans after it passed in the House of Representatives in 2021 with bipartisan support. After it passed in the House of Representatives in 2021 by, by, by bipartisan support. Now, Joe Biden, then a U.S. senator from Delaware, crafted the 1986 crime bill, not 1994, but 1986 crime bill that initially set a 100 to 1 ratio between powder and crack cocaine to trigger mandatory minimum sentences. Now, keep in mind, Biden didn't do all this by himself. It, it passed both the House and the Senate, and it was signed into law by a not a Democratic president, but a Republican president named Ronald Reagan in 1986. OK, now the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010 under President Barack Obama, which passed Congress and uh, Obama signed it into law, reduced the ratio from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. The Biden-Harris administration endorsed the Equal Act in 2021. Now, in a statement sent to Cory Booker, one of the co-sponsors of the Equal Act, said uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland's move is a recognition of the injustice caused by the sentencing disparities. OK, so I just read his statements. Um, Garland's eight Garland aides say the new guidelines will take effect within 30 days, uh, are part of a broader set of changes the attorney general is is making to the Justice Department's charging policies. The department under Attorney General Merrick Garland continues to support the passage of the Equal Act, AIDS said. Unlike a potential legislative change to federal policy, they noted Attorney General Merrick Garland's memo would not retroactively apply to previous convictions. Now, in April of 2022, um, Senator Senators Grassley and Sen Senator Grassley of Iowa, Senator Mike Lee of Utah and Senator Roger Wicker of, of Mississippi and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina proposed legislation that will reduce the ratio of powder to crack cocaine that would trigger mandatory minimum sentences to 2.5 to 1. All right. Those um, we're out of time here on 19 a.m. Superstation WFDF. Remember, right now, it's fresh wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. 
Happy Kwanzaa. Happy New Year to everybody. This is our last show of the year. Those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching. We're going to keep going. Remember, right now, it's correct. Wrong behavior is not over till we win. We're kind of forever. Talk to you next time. Visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, and we'll see you at the Kwanzaa celebration. Peace. Okay, stand by. Let's continue. Stand by. All right, let's go back to this article here. Okay, now, um, okay, now, unlike the Equal Act, okay, unlike the Equal Act, however, the bill would achieve parity in part by increasing penalties for powder cocaine users. Uh, those Republicans cited an analysis in January 2022 from the U.S. Sentencing Commission that said uh, studies in 2005 and 2010, let me increase the size of this. Uh, okay, hold on. Let me go back to where we left off. Just a second here. I need to go back to. Okay, right here. Okay, those Republicans cited an analysis in January of 2022 um, from the U.S. Sentencing Commission that said studies in 2005 and 2010 found that crack cocaine offenders had higher recidivism rates, had higher recidivism rates than those who use marijuana, powder cocaine, heroin, or methamphetamines. Okay, those Republicans cited, cited an analysis in January of 2022 from the U.S. Sentencing Commission that said studies in 2005 and 2010 found that crack cocaine offenders had higher recidivism rates than those whose marijuana who's than those who use marijuana powder cocaine heroin or methamphetamines now the senators wrote quote these statistics show the need for a close look at all available government data before we consider an approach to flatten sentencing for crack and powder cocaine offenses. Now, there was a um, part that I wanted to look at to see. I made the gestures for me. Okay, so it was, um, yeah, the move long sought by civil rights advocates comes as the Equal Act, a bill that would eliminate the disparity, has been stalled in the Senate amid objections from some Republicans after it passed in the House last year with bipartisan support after passing the House in 2021. Now, uh, it goes on. Let me see. Is this part still in here? Because uh, I know they updated the article. I want to see if this part is still in here. Those studies have shown that historically most crack cocaine users have been white or Hispanic 
A report from the U.S. Sentencing Commission last year, 2021, found that 77% of those convicted of crack cocaine trafficking offenses in 2020 were African-American. Let me see if this is uh, still in here. Okay, right here. So this part right here. Okay, though studies have shown that historically most crack cocaine users have been white or Hispanic. A report from the U.S. Sentencing Commission in 2021 found that 77% of those convicted of crack cocaine trafficking crack cocaine trafficking offenses in 2020 were African American. All right, uh, and then it goes on to say Garland, Attorney General Garland's memo cited Justice Department testimony last year to the Senate Judiciary Committee that sentencing disparities are simply not supported by science as there are no significant pharmacological differences, differences between the drugs. They are two forms of the same drug with powder readily convertible into crack cocaine. Now, federal crack prosecutions have fallen significantly in recent years. The U.S. Sentencing Commission said there were 1,088 crack cocaine trafficking offenders in fiscal year 2021, accounting for 6% of all offenders sentenced for a drug trafficking offense. The total represented a 32% decrease from four years earlier, the uh, Sentencing Commission, the U.S. Sentencing Commission said. Okay, uh, so read the rest of this article. This is from the Washington Post. U.S. Attorney General moves to end sentencing disparities on crack powder cocaine. U.S. Attorney General moves to end sentencing disparities on crack powder cocaine. This is from December 16th, uh, 2022. All right, now I want to go to this next story. We're going to try to get all this in. Um, how's everybody doing? Give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like on this broadcast. Uh, we have Fly Girl watching. Also, Nikki was uh, watching earlier and uh, didn't give a uh, didn't get a chance to give a shout out to uh, uh, Nikki, who was watching. I think she was watching on Facebook. Uh, Nikki Sapphire, uh, she was watching um, as well. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like on this broadcast. So there was a uh, article that we posted on our fan page, the African History Network, from um, CBS Sports. Came out a few days ago. And this dealt with NFL owners get defensive after scouting combine gets compared to slave auction by league exec Troy Vincent, okay? Now, before we go to that story, I want to go to this story. We're going to talk about that, but I want to go to this story here dealing with uh, Deion Sanders. 
And there was the um, press conference that was held before the SWAT conference game between uh, uh, the uh, Eagles uh, and uh, Jackson State University, okay? And we know Jackson State lost the game. Uh, also, also in the segment for Roland Martin Unfiltered, where we talked, where we dealt with the uh, talked about the Attorney General, there was an article that I referenced from April 2016 from Harper's uh, Harper's Magazine. It's called "Legalize It All: Legalize It All: How to Win the War on Drugs," and this is the article written by Dan Baum, where he reveals in 1994 he. Uh, interviewed John Ehrlichman, who was Richard Nixon's domestic policy advisor, okay? And uh, he said in that interview, um, he said that we knew that, he, he talked about how the war on drugs was a war on the, um, the anti-war movement in the African-American community. And in the interview, Dan Baum revealed that John Ehrlichman, Richard Nixon's former domestic policy advisor, said, you want to know what this is really about? You want to know what this is really about? Let me uh, get to go back to this here. Okay. He asked with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace, because John Ehrlichman went to federal prison because he was involved in the Watergate scandal. He asked, with the bluntness, bluntness of a man who after public disgrace and a stretch in federal prison had little left to protect. He, he revealed that John Ehrlichman told him, quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? Dan, uh, John, Ehrlichman, John Ehrlichman asks. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. We knew we could not make it illegal to be either against the Vietnam War or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily criminalizing the hippies who were against the Vietnam war movement and criminalizing the African-American community. He said, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings. And this is one of the most important things he said here, very strategic and vilify them night after night on the evening news and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did, end quote. Read the rest of this article here called Legalize It All, April 2016 cover story for Harper's Magazine written by Dan Baum. This is what I talked about on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Okay, now, um, 
uh, I want to go to this clip here. Uh, this is from the press conference that Deion Sanders did, primetime. Okay. And he is talking about criticism from people. And most of these people criticizing him and doing interviews, all this stuff, running them out. Most of these people have not talked to Deion Sanders. And a lot of them are project, projecting onto Deion Sanders what they wanted him to do. They, a, lot, a lot of people who are criticizing him are projecting onto Deion Sanders what they what their desire for him to do is, as opposed to listening to what he says his purpose is. And he says something to the effect, uh, you know, they supported me when I said God led me to Jackson State University to HBCU, but don't support him when he says the same God led him to Colorado. So I guess maybe they support one guy, but not the other guy or something like that. Or I don't know what the hell they're talking about. But anyway, um, let's go to let's go to this clip here. Let me cue this up. Okay. All right, folks, a big game tomorrow on North Carolina Central Eagles, Jackson State Tigers, MEAC versus the SWAC in the Celebration Bowl airing at noon Eastern on ESPN. Today, both teams held their news conferences, and Deion Sanders addressed the issue of him leaving Jackson State after three years, become the head coach of the University of Colorado, HBCU to a PWI. Here's primetime. Let's, let's, let's get the cat out of the bag, man. Let's go ahead and talk about that. You're right on all accounts. I appreciate you. Um, never once did I say they're going to put a tombstone with my name on it at Jackson State. So I wasn't going to die here. Y'all know that. Everything I said I would do, I did. Everything I said I wanted to happen, I tried my darnest to make it happen. We've exceeded, I think, expectations in some realm. But when I don't fit into someone else's plan and purpose, now there's ridicule. But you forgot about my plan and God's purpose. Uh, that's where the dysfunction comes. I reached a point where I said to myself, we're going to go out there and recruit another great class. And we were. And, and TC will. And we're going to win again. So at what point do we keep dominating that you don't get mad at us for dominating? Because it's a level of dominance where you start to turn. And I felt that. You start to get tension from our own people because you're dominant. And you start saying, well, that's prime. He can recruit that. We ain't got that. We don't have this. We heard that last night. You're four and five stars. Yeah, because we recruit those and they, and they sign. But it comes a time that that's not what it's all about for me. I'm a winner. I've always won. I'm going to win. Y'all know that. If you've done your homework. But it's bigger than that. It's about increasing enrollment. It's about the safety of students. It's about going to the next level, not just in football. I would love to go to another conference. Is the rest of the school ready? Is the baseball team ready? Is the basketball teams ready? Or just the football team? So you make it just about football, and it's not just about football to me. It's about our trainers and kids that the fire alarms may go off and not being turned off at 3.15 in the morning. It's about people that may not have the proper safety on a campus that they should. I'm not just talking about Jackson State. I'm talking about everywhere. So the things that I want to accomplish, I can't do it by just being the darn football coach and winning games. 
I can't do it. And I reached a point where I had a real conversation with the Lord. Now, it's funny how you believe the Lord when he said to come here, but you don't believe me when I tell you the Lord may tell me to do otherwise. It's like my God is talking to you about me. I don't think he works like that. But it's so much more that I can't do because that's not my occupation. I'm a football coach and a darn good one. And name one thing in football that we haven't accomplished that I said we would. But it's bigger than that. And until we address these underlying issues that nobody wants to talk about, ain't nothing going to change. Football, yes. But what else is going to change? And I'm a change agent. That's what it's all about to me. Because I'm not just attached to the football players, the equipment persons, the trainers, the academic persons, everybody on campus. When we leave, you're going to find out what all we did. Because they don't really talk about the positivity until we go. You'll find out what all we did for Jackson State and all we wanted to do for Jackson State. I just pray to God that in all that getting, get some understanding on change and where change really starts. And it does not start in the football department. I thought it was good. Hey, that was a moment, wasn't it? Yeah, Coach Thank you, Sam, for clapping me up. Was, uh... That was uh, Deion Sanders. That was from Friday, December 16th. That was the conference uh, before the the day before uh, the uh, SWAT conference game. All right. Let me refresh the screen here. Stand by, everybody. What happened? Okay, we're back. You have to refresh the screen. Have some technical difficulties. I have to get a, um, I have to get a new laptop. Um, this laptop that I have is um, not the right type of laptop I need to do this type of broadcasting. I, uh, when this laptop went down on me a few months, when it went down a few months ago um, and I had to take it in to get a service, luckily I have a four-year warranty on it. I bought this from Staples. I talked to the um, the guy who uh, deals, uh, who's the, uh, the tech repair person there at Staples, and he said, uh, I explained to him what what I do, and he said, I need to get a gaming laptop, a gaming laptop, which um, has more memory, is faster, and when I broadcast, but also when I edit video, that that uh, editing video uh, takes up a lot of the uh, uh, CPU uh, power, the, the capacity, so I need to get a uh, gaming laptop, so that's something that I'm focused on doing um, in the new year. But uh, I want to go to this story here. This is from CBS News, uh, CBS Sports. And uh, we posted this story on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. This article um, came out December 15th, Thursday, December 15th, 2022. And it's gotten over 800 uh, likes. It's gotten hundreds of comments. Uh, NFL owners get defensive after scouting combine gets compared to slave auction by league exec Troy Vincent. 
Okay, now Troy Vincent is an uh, African-American male. And he told the truth. But just like the movie, A Few Good Men, I think it is, um, some people can't handle the truth. Some people can't handle the truth. So there have been other people who have made this analogy in the past. But Troy Vincent said this in a meeting with the team owners that said it to their face. Vincent was criticizing the evolving process for measuring and analyzing draft prospects. Now, this is a good article written by Jonathan Jones for um, CBSSports.com. So if we look at this quickly here, now here's Troy Vincent, okay, he's an African-American man, and he told the truth. Now, several, several team owners took offense on Wednesday, and that was um, Wednesday, December 14th, okay? Wednesday, December 14th. Several team owners took offense Wednesday at a league at league meetings when NFL executive vice president of football operations, Troy Vincent, referred to the NFL scouting combine as having characteristics of a slave auction. As having characteristics of a slave auction, multiple people present in the room told CBS News. Now, Troy Vincent spoke to uh, ownership of the teams, NFL ownership, NFL team owners, Wednesday morning, announcing changes to the combine that would involve less tedious medical evaluation, uh, a less tedious medical evaluation process, and a closer look at questions teams ask of draft prospects. The combine and other pre-draft evaluations have been uh, have been criticized for what some consider dehumanizing methods of getting information about players. Now, Troy Vincent told uh, media later in the day Quote, we just feel like the overall experience talking to players, we can be better in that particular aspect. We just feel like the overall experience talking to the players, we can be better in that particular aspect. He went on to say, quote, so there was, so there was I would say, a good, a good discussion around what that looks like where we could be keeping in mind that the combine is the player's first experience with the national football league, the NFL. And in that experience, there has to be dignity in that experience. There has to be dignity. He said, it's a great opportunity for the young men, but there has to be some form of dignity dignity and level of dignity and respect as they go through that process. That was the overall theme around our combine discussion. 
Now, sources within the ownership uh, meeting revealed details of what Troy Vincent said among team owners that included the reference to a slave auction. Now, in the meeting, Troy Vincent's comments drew an immediate response from Atlanta Falcons owner, Arthur Blank, who, uh, who stood up and registered his offense, according to sources. Atlanta Falcons owner, Arthur Blank, who has a strong record on diversity and inclusion over his two decades in the NFL took umbrage with the idea that he was either taking part in or helping to prop up an event that could be considered racist. Just because you have a strong record on um, uh, diversity and inclusion, that doesn't mean that you are not taking place in uh, a, a practice that is uh, that can be considered racist or has racist overtones. Okay, it, it, both both things can uh, be true at the same time. So when we have people like Arthur Blank who take offense to something like that. We have to let them know that you may mean well, but you are still participating in a practice that uh, can be dehumanizing at the same time. Now, Cowboys owner Jerry Jones followed Arthur Blank on the microphone. According to sources, Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys, talked about the quote-unquote privilege of playing in the NFL. Now, a Cowboys spokesman said Jerry Jones didn't say quote-unquote privilege, but instead said opportunity. He noted how many thousands of college football players there are, how only uh, roughly 300 get invited to the combine, and how even fewer get drafted. But still, Jerry Jones who had a problem uh, with his uh, players taking a knee in support of Colin Kaepernick's protest and protesting against racism, okay? Um, and we just talked about Jerry Jones um, as well. There was a story, uh, a 1957 photo of Jerry Jones at a protest against uh, school desegregation uh, surfaced. This article from Washington Post, a 1957 photo of Jerry Jones reminds us how recent America's past is. This is written by Philip Bump, November 30th, 2022. And this, uh, okay, it was Jerry Jones in, in, in this crowd here. He was 14 years old at the time. Uh, defiant white students at North Little Rock High School blocked the doors of the school denying access uh, to six black students enrolled in the Arkansas school on September 9th, 1957. Moments later, those students were shoved down a flight of stairs and onto the sidewalk where city police broke up the altercation. And there's a picture of Jerry Jones right here when he was 14, okay, who's in the crowd. 
All right. So we talked about this. Read the rest of this article. Um, he said, you know, he just uh, uh, went there. He, he, he was there and the uh, protests like evolved or something like that. Let's see. Okay. So read the rest of this article here. Uh, let me see. What does it say here? On September 9th, 1957, Jerry Jones was one of a few uh, a few dozen white teenagers who confronted a group of uh, black students outside the doors of Little Rock uh, High School in Arkansas. A photograph of the encounter taken by a photographer for the Associated Press centers on two white students, one laughing, uh, one with a cigarette in his snarl staring down one of the black students. Shortly after the photo was taken, uh, the black students were pushed down, pushed back down the stairs to the street, their effort to integrate the school rejected by force, at least for the time being. Uh, and in the background, a few feet behind the snarling kid, you see Jerry Jones. Yeah, we talked about this on uh, Faraji Muhammad's show, The Culture, that's where it was. Now, uh, they they have a statement here from uh, Jerry Jones, and let's see here. Um, uh, Jerry Jones says something like, "There was a long time ago." Uh, I want to get I want to get to his exact statement. Just a second. All right, it's an article. I can't find it right now, but. Uh, Jerry Jones uh, made a statement, something like that was a long time ago and he was 14 years old. And um, it just, you know, the, the uh, protest just happened or something. All right, let's continue. Okay, now, hold on, stand by. Okay, so read that uh, article from the Washington Post. All right, now I want to go back to this uh, piece here from uh, CBS Sports. All right. Now, this article from CBS Sports, um, he noted how many, uh, Jerry Jones noted how many thousands of college uh, football players there are, how only roughly 300, how only roughly 300 uh, get invited to the combine and how even fewer get drafted. All right, now Steelers owner uh, Art Rooney followed up by noting that the teams need the necessary at the combine to make informed decisions, according to sources. Okay. Now, Art Rooney, uh, Art Rooney II, Art Rooney II is chairman of the NFL Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, 
that brought its coach and executive diversity accelerator program to these meetings. He declined to comment on the record about the meeting. He declined to comment on the record about the meeting. Then Bill's owner, Terry uh, Pagula, took to the microphone to make a point that confused many in the room. According to sources, uh, Terry Pagula, Pagula, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, did not condone the combine weigh-ins, which are not televised, but seemed to play a devil's advocate role that it's ultimately what people want to see, but seemed to play a devil's advocate role, uh, but seemed to play a devil's advocate role that it that it's ultimately what people want to see. He then tried to bridge football with women's tennis, the sport of his daughter, Jessica, who is ranked number three in the world. Now, the Buffalo Bills owner appeared to, be to bemoan the sometimes revealing outfits that he said women tennis players are encouraged to wear. Some sources construed his comments to mean that sports all have some level of exploitation. Another, another source simply called them incoherent. Another source simply called his comments incoherent. The conversation came to an end shortly after uh, Terry Pagula's, shortly after Terry Pagula's confusing comments. Now the conversation was not wholly new and the combine process has been discussed and changed over time. We know Colin Kaepernick spoke out against the combine process in a documentary and likened it to, and likened it to a slave auction as well. But the tone of this discussion was noteworthy. Terry Vincent, a, uh, who, uh, a former pro bowler as a player, has been with the NFL since 2014 as a leader in football operations and he has addressed topics such as kneeling during the national anthem and coaching hiring discrepancy the discrepancies okay hiring discrepancies when it comes to uh nfl coaches especially head coaches while serving as in words he used in an interview with the root the root.com a bridge builder from inside the league office, a bridge builder from inside the league office. Uh, Troy Vincent, I should say. Now, Troy Vincent took up the topic of the combine as the entire pre-draft process has been overhauled uh, in recent years. The league no longer issues the uh, Wonderlick test which is an aptitude exam that has been criticized for its bias and relevancy. Before that, the Senior Bowl and Shrine Bowl did away with public measurements and weigh-ins. The combine is crucial to NFL teams for medical information and player interviews. Uh, the league has already tweaked the schedule for next year's combine. As CBS Sports first reported two weeks ago, after consulting with players 
and their representation on better practices uh, moving forward. Quote, the biggest thing that the players have raised over time is, I come in, I'm fired up for this, and I have to go and get an additional medical test. And I'm sitting in a hospital waiting four or five hours for an MRI uh, machine. I have I have to have multiple meetings about the same type of injury, uh, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said Wednesday. For us, it's really for us for us, it's really about trying to improve that experience. And they talk about lack of sleep because they get in at one o'clock in the morning and then have to be back at five. Okay. They get in at one o'clock in the morning, then have to be back at 5 a.m. And then they have to perform on the field. And it's an important element for them because they want to perform at the highest level. Okay, so read the rest of this article here. Um, this is from uh, CBSSports.com. Uh, NFL owners get defensive about scouting combine. It, NFL owners get defensive after scouting combine gets compared to quote unquote slave auction by league exec Troy Vincent. Okay, so check this out. We posted this on our our fan page, the African History Network, and um, this got uh, over eight hundred likes and uh, tons of comments on it as well. Okay, last story. This deals with uh, Tatiana Jefferson. So we're going to go to this last story here. And be sure to, uh, if you haven't registered for uh, online classes that I teach on uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, um, it is... Uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. So if you go to our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, you'll see uh, at the top of the page, you'll see the information for uh, our online, uh, you'll see the information for our radio show, you'll see our social media uh, uh, handles as well. So you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And then we have the uh, PayPal and Cash App information there also. When you scroll down the page, you'll see information about seven days of Kwanzaa at um, the historic King Solomon Church. I'm speaking on the second day of Kwanzaa, December 27th, uh, Tuesday, December 27th, which is uh, Kuji Chagalia. And we have the uh, bundle pack, our, our uh, download of 15 of my lectures uh, in digital download format. That's on sale, $50, regular $150. African History Awakens the African Mind for Mental Death. And then we have the uh, information about our online classes. So our next online class, this is our 12-week 12 12 online class. We're going to do uh, a little more than 12 weeks. We'll do about 13 to 14 sessions, something like that. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. 
Our next class is Wednesday, December 21st, 2022, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and uh, watch it anytime. Um, I'm going to post a link here uh, uh, once again. You can use this information with your family. I would say the content is PG-13. Uh, you can use this with children also. And let me see something here. Okay, we've got it right here. Yeah, we'll post a link right here. So our next class is on the winter solstice, which is December 21st. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. Okay, so a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch the entire class. Uh, the class is on sale, $130, uh, this class is on sale, $60, regularly $130. And I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips, uh, in the class. So you can use this, uh, it's a great reference tool. Uh, you never look at history the same way and you can use this information with the children also. We have both classes in the bundle pack for only $100. That's an over $260 value. So click right here to register for the bundle pack. In our second class, uh, I normally teach this on Tuesdays, is from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. But we start uh, the class in 1800, and we look at the 1800 U.S. Census, and we look at the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Revolution. Louisiana Purchase of 1803, because those two events are related. And we go throughout history chronologically and look at history leading up to the Civil War. Then we look at uh, the Reconstruction Era, 1865, 1877, Jim Crow Era, uh, World War I, World War II, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, and the Great Migration. Our next class is uh, scheduled for Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So you can register for the class right now. You can watch the archive content. You can watch the previous classes and get caught up. So you'll be ready for class on Tuesday, January 23rd. All right. Now, uh, let's go to uh, this last story here. And this deals with uh, Tatiana Jefferson. And the officer... Uh, who shot and killed Tatiana Jefferson has been found uh, guilty of manslaughter, been found guilty of manslaughter. Let me pull this up here. Former uh, police officer Aaron Dean has been found guilty of manslaughter. So this was uh, big news. He has not been sentenced as of yet. Let's pull up this order. Uh, former uh, officer Aaron Dean found guilty of manslaughter in the shooting in the shooting of a Tatiana Jefferson. And I want to pull up this clip all here from uh, NBC News Now. Let's cue this up. Okay. Um, so Aaron, a former officer, Darren. Darren, uh, I mean, Aaron Dean, who resigned from the Fort Worth Police Department before his arrest was indicted by a Texas grand jury in December 2019.
Now, a, now this article is from uh, December 15, 2022. A former Texas officer who shot and killed an African-American woman through a window, through a window, We shot and killed an African-American woman through a window in her home in uh, October 2019 was found guilty of mass slaughter on Thursday. Aaron Dean, a former white police officer, uh, a white Fort Worth, uh, Texas police officer, fatally shot at Tatiana Jefferson, who was 28 years old and a legal gun owner, by the way, and a legal gun owner who had been playing video games um, at, at home with her eight year old nephew. Now, Aaron Dean, Officer Aaron Dean was responding to uh, Jefferson's home after a concerned neighbor called a non-emergency line around 2 a.m. to say he had noticed an open front door. Quote, the jury, uh, which could have found Aaron Dean guilty of murder, announced his verdict after having deliberated for about 13 hours. He faces between two to 20 years in prison for the manslaughter conviction. Okay, he faces between two to 20 years in prison for the manslaughter conviction. Now the jury will decide Aaron Dean's sentence after it hears from prosecutors and Dean's defense team during the punishment phase. Okay, I wanna to go to this clip here from uh, uh, NBC News Now that talks about uh, the conviction. Some breaking news, the jury in the trial of the police officer who shot Tatiana Jefferson has reached a verdict. Former Texas police officer Aaron Dean has been convicted of manslaughter. Dean fatally shot Jefferson at her home in Fort Worth. Uh, joining us now is NBC News legal analyst, Dan Sanders. You've also been watching this trial closely. Uh, your thoughts, your reaction to the verdict here? Not too surprising. Look, it's much more difficult to convict police officers because they're the people in society that we deputize to go out and use force. They're armed, they patrol. So it's always a different case. Police officers always have a better shot at a self-defense claim. So this was anyone's game, the prosecution or the defense. But once the jury got that lesser included uh, option of manslaughter, then that upped the odds that this defendant would be convicted of something. So instead of being convicted of murder, which requires intent to kill. In Texas, he's now convicted of manslaughter, which just requires recklessness. In other words, that there was a risk and that the defendant consciously and unjustifiably disregarded that risk. The difference in penalties, very significant. Murder is five to 99 years or life. Whereas uh, manslaughter in Texas is two, uh, a minimum of two years, and I believe up to 20 years. So very significant difference in sentencing. Danny, can you take us back a couple steps and remind us the sequence of events here and, and why, you know, why the guilty? Yeah, victim, you mean the facts, victim the facts of the case, uh, was yeah. at home. Yeah, victim was at home with a, a child. They had opened the doors. I believe it was because of the smell of a, a burnt hamburger. Uh, police responded. Uh, the officer testified, and you're seeing this a lot more in high-profile cases, particularly police officer self-defense cases, 
took the stand. You don't see that statistically very often, but you're seeing it more and more in high-profile self-defense cases. The officer took the stand and explained that he did think that there was a gun being pointed at him. The problem is the prosecution's evidence tended to show uh, the opposite, that in fact he did not uh, have reason to think or uh, think that the gun was being uh, pointed at him. So it really became a credibility determination, and it looks like the jury concluded that he did not have the intent to kill, but rather just acted so recklessly that it justified a manslaughter conviction. Would you anticipate an appeal of this verdict, Danny, or, or is this the sort of thing where the outcome is not likely to change? Well, those are two two different questions. Yes, absolutely, he will appeal. Uh, everyone appeals their conviction uh, at jury trial. Whether or not it's successful, the odds, the straight-up odds of any appeal being successful, they're always against a criminal defendant who is convicted by a jury. Uh, but you never know. There might be something in the jury instructions that the defense is a little hinky, and they may be able to convince an appeals court uh, that he at least deserves a new trial, if not vacating the conviction completely. All right, so that was from uh, NBC News, uh, NBC News Now. And that clip is uh, in the is in this article as well. Uh, if we go back to uh, this article briefly here, uh, Fort Worth Mayor uh, Maddie Parker said in a statement Thursday afternoon, uh, today's verdict provides a, a measure of justice. Today's verdict provides a measure of justice, though it does not change the fact that a tragedy occurred that should have never happened. Uh, this tragedy for me uh, has always been about uh, Tatiana Jefferson, about her life as a daughter, sister, and aunt, and her lasting legacy, uh, uh, Mayor uh, Maddie Parker said in the statement. Many people in our community are hurting and we must come together with compassion and grace. Our prayers are with the jury as they continue their service in the sentencing phase, end quote. Now, Tarrant County Prosecutor uh, Ashleah Denner, D-E-E-N-E-R, said Wednesday during closing arguments that Tatiana Jefferson acted reasonably, acted reasonably, and, with, and within her rights, to protect herself and her nephew, uh, her nephew's name is Zion Carr. When she heard uh, noises outside her home in the middle of the night and, and got hold of her gun, and she did not know police officers were at her residence, okay? And she was, once again, a legal gun owner. Quote, we, ha uh, we have not seen one shred of evidence that anything that anything Tatiana did was unlawful. In fact, we heard quite the opposite, uh, she said. Tatiana Jefferson did not commit any criminal acts. She did not commit any criminal acts by walking uh, up to the window with her gun, thinking someone was outside. It's what many of us would do. That's what you would expect us to do to try to protect ourselves. And in this case, Zion as well, end quote. Now, Bob Gill, a defense attorney for uh, Officer Aaron Dean, former Officer Aaron Dean, said that while Tatiana Jefferson's death was tragic, quote, a tragedy 
doesn't always equal a crime. A tragedy doesn't always equal a crime. And the former officer was acting in self-defense when he shot Tatiana Jefferson after he saw a gun in the window. Now, defense attorney Bob Gill said uh, Tatiana had the right to protect herself and her home, quote, up until the point that she pointed a firearm at the at a Fort Worth police officer, end quote. Now, defense attorney Bob Gill also said that Aaron Dean's testimony, uh, uh, former officer Aaron Dean's testimony matched what Zion first told a child forensic interviewer shortly after the shooting that his aunt pointed a gun at the window, that his aunt pointed a gun at the window. During the trial, Zion testified instead that when his aunt was shot, her gun was still by her side. Now, Zion also said the front and side doors were open because they had accidentally burned hamburgers as they were making dinner. He also testified uh, that Tatiana Jefferson took her gun, took out her gun, which she legally owned, because she heard noises outside the home and believed there could be an intruder. Earlier in the trial, okay, uh, former officer, former officer Aaron Dean took the stand in his own defense saying he thought he was responding to the scene of a burglary. He thought he was responding to, to the scene of a burglary and saw a figure in a window of Jefferson's home. He said, quote, I thought we had a burglar. And so I stepped back and straightened up and drew my weapon and then pointed it towards the figure. Uh, this is a picture of uh, former officer Aaron Dean on the witness stand. Now, he said that he could not see the person's hands and that he began shouting for Tatiana Jefferson to put her hands, to put up her hands. And then he saw a gun. He said, quote, I'm just looking right down the barrel of the gun. And when I saw uh, the barrel of that gun pointed at me, I fired a single shot from my duty weapon. Uh, he said on the witness stand. Now, prosecutors say evidence in the trial showed that uh, former officer Aaron Dean did not see a gun in Tatiana Jefferson's hands, as he claims. Prosecutors said Dean's actions showed that he was unsure of what he saw in the window before he shot uh, Tatiana, and that evidence showed that she was crouched down, not facing forward pointing a gun at officer Aaron Dean prosecutor R Dale Smith, uh, the, the, uh, initial R R Dale Smith sought in his rebuttal Wednesday to cast doubt on former officer Aaron Dean's testimony about seeing a gun before he shot a Tatiana Jefferson saying that after, uh, Dean shot her, he continued to stand in front of the window and did not tell his partner when they entered the home that he had seen a weapon quote because he wasn't sure what was on the other side of that window end quote 
Now, uh, Prosecutor R. Dale Smith went on, went on to say, what officer would allow one of his partners to run into a house where they thought a burglar was happening, a burglary, a burglary was happening without saying, hey, there's a gun in there. So read the rest of this article here from um, NBC News, NBCNews.com. Former officer Aaron Dean found guilty of manslaughter in the shooting death of a Tatiana Jefferson. This is from uh, December 15, 2022, written by Daniela Silva for uh, NBC News. All right. Look, that's going to do it for us. Uh, hey, if you like this type of information, if you learned anything from today's show, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Also do PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. This helps us keep doing the research in the new year, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills, etc. And then also uh, we have our uh, 15... We have the uh, 15 uh, lecture bundle pack in digital download format. African history awakens the African mind uh, from mental death. Okay. And that's on sale uh, for $50 right now. It's it's uh, all uh, digital download format. So a lot of people said they wanted my lectures in digital download format. Well, we have a bundle pack for it makes a great gift as well. Uh, where is it? This one um, right here, right on the homepage of our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Theafricanhistorynetwork.com is on sale to December 24th. It's a $150 value. Okay. And you just click right here, click on the link right here, and it takes you to the next page and it shows you all of the uh, 15 lectures in the bundle pack. OK, gives the titles of all the 15 lectures uh, in the bundle pack. So you get some of my presentations dealing with the film Black Panther. There's some lectures dealing with African history, African-American history, uh, politics, economic empowerment. Uh, all that is in this um, 15 uh, lecture bundle pack. All right. And we'll post a link here uh, on the thread of the, of the broadcast. Now, we do have. The bundle pack in DVD format as well, and that's at our that's at our website also. In DVD format, is it's a hundred dollars. Digital download format is a special. Um, we have a special uh, promotion going on right now. It is uh, uh, fifty dollars in digital download format until December twenty fourth. Okay, so we posted the link there as well. Look, we have to get out of here. Remember, the African History Network we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people. African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And um, we'll see you at the uh, Kwanzaa celebration. Okay. Uh, at uh, King Solomon uh, Church in Detroit. And we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.